Amanda Shires and Shay Serrano are renegades. Go ahead, try to tell them how things used to get done. This is the National Podcast of Texas, a production of Texas Monthly, the national magazine of Texas. Welcome. This week's National Podcast of Texas is brought to you by Direct Energy. I'm Andy Langer, and this week it's a doubleheader. Amanda Shires just released one of the year's most critically acclaimed new albums, a record that depending on how well you know her work or don't is a logical leap forward or a big surprise. Meanwhile, on the heels of back-to-back New York Times bestsellers, author and cultural commentator Shea Serrano has opted to release his latest work in PDF format, foregoing both a traditional publisher and physical copies. Both Texans are attempting to both challenge and super-serve unusually committed audiences. We'll begin with Amanda Shires. NPR describes her just-released album, To the Sunset, as bracing and invigorating. For people that only know the Texas native, from her early days as Billy Joe Shaver's fiddle player, or as part of her husband Jason Isbell's touring band, it might be a little jarring. There's more than a few moments where her fiddle, run through effect pedals, is louder and fuzzier than anything we've heard from her yet. She came by Texas Monthly a few weeks ago while she was visiting Austin to open a show for her friend, confidant, and longtime hero, John Prine. In our conversation, she details her sonic restlessness, her childhood in mineral wells, and the constant pursuit of something like a work-life balance with her husband-slash-bandmate. This is Amanda Shires. Welcome. So this record's, again, a departure, but you've prepared your audience for departures by this point. I I think so. Thank you for saying that. I, I think so. And I think that when I hear that it's a departure, I always say, I don't really think it is if you listen to the whole catalog. I mean, in that they build on each other or in that there's a constant that runs through them? Kind of both. Um, I was asked the first the first couple of times after, um, you know, the first song came out and everything about the synthesizers and stuff and and the um, change of sound. And I was saying, you know, if you if you listen to Downfell the Doves, there's definitely hints to that in affecting things and whatnot. So, you know. It might be different for some people, but I see the threads. Is it about, it's not about guessing what the audience might want. It's purely about where you think this should go next. It's purely about, it's not even that. It's, um, I am in service of the song, I think. And, and I, I wrote the record in a closet, in my clothes closet. And, um, I spent 10 or 12 hours a day in there and, um, I started hearing the sounds, hearing sounds, I guess, in um, the way it should sound. And I never think about really what it, what the audience would like to hear, or what the audience expects to hear from me, because I think that that makes doesn't it's not a true art. Then, if you're if that makes sense. You wrote it in the closet because you've got a toddler running around, and mm-hmm. the closet's the only place I would assume to find any kind of quiet. Yeah. Unless it's an awfully big closet, I'm, that's a claustrophobic space to be producing art in. It's um not it's not like one of those fancy Kardashian closets or one of those California closets. It's basically two normal closets stuck together, and um, my husband's things are on the right side and mine are on the left. And um, I just shoved all the shoes out of the way and uh, put the uh, ukulele and the auto harp and my violin and then my notebooks in there along with the shredder. Luckily, ukuleles and fiddles are small. They, thank goodness. Yeah, but um, no, I do. I, I would like to write in the main part of the house, but I would either be playing during Mercy's nap, and everything would get messed up, or or else I would um wind up having to hear harmonica solos off key and off tempo while I was also trying to play because she's she's she likes a harmonica. But do you think there's a difference between this record you wrote in a closet? and one you might have written somewhere else, let's say the living room. Definitely, definitely. I, I, for me, s- the space uh, is everything 
you know, where you're riding and what's around you and just the, you know, just like you were saying, just the isolation and then the cramped quarters. Do you call it a violin and we call it a fiddle? It's a, uh, it's a violin when you're selling it and a fiddle when you're buying it. Okay. <laughs> but do you usually refer to it as a violin? I, I, either term, because I can play either style. What do we like about the sound of that instrument? That's a good question. Um, probably the loneliness of it. I mean, it, it um, has a lot of space for air, um, air like not error, but air you breathe. Like it's, it's an airy sound. And it um, also, I think, mimics the human voice pretty well. I mean, that was the intention. And um, some people really don't like it. And then those people are not my friends. The legend of you and the fiddle is that you were, what, two years old when you pointed to one and said, I had to have that? Ten. Ten? Yeah. Okay. And that was the first time you'd seen one. Mm -hmm. So you didn't know about any of that. No, I feel like I'd seen one before, probably, in some of my early memories, but I, I don't really, can't even figure out if that's a placed memory that I've done myself or if that was always there. Like, I feel like I had seen one before. Surely in ten years I'd seen one. But I saw it and I convinced my dad to get it for me. And um, we we were a family of, not, you know, few means. And so when I was trying to convince him, he said, you have to learn how to play it. And I said, okay. Then we got it home and I broke all the strings and I couldn't play it till I got home to my mom in Lubbock and she bought me some lessons. You didn't know, you couldn't have known, even if you had seen one before, mm -hmm. how the fiddle fits into panhandle history and the music that comes from there. Mm -mm. You couldn't have made any of those connections at no, that age. No, we didn't even have YouTube. Right. <laughs> there was no internet. <laughs> but to stumble upon that mm -hmm. the way you did, I mean, that's the most natural way. Um, or I mean, unnatural probably. way, depending on how you look at it. Right. I don't know. Some people learn from their folks and their grandparents, and, um, and I happen to just find it and, I, you know, never let it go, so... We have a piece in Texas Monthly, I guess five years ago, where Jeff Solomon, who wrote it, says, Latching on to the violin was perhaps Shire's attempt to gain some stability in her life. Mm -hmm. Is that an accurate statement? Truly. Um, I, I was, um, you know, I was young. My parents divorced young, and, you know, as a lot of people's parents do, in when I was young, I mean, and um, we moved around a lot. Um, my mom and I and my sister and my dad was in Mineral Wells, and then there's a lot of moving from town to town and my mom trying to, you know, climb climb out of, of, of her various minimum wage jobs and go to school and all that. And um, as, a, as a 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old, I really didn't have um, vocabulary or... Um, kind of the know-how of how to express myself or my feelings. And I think that's why the violin fiddle stuck with me is because it was a way that I could um, express myself and, you know, bury myself in something and um, feel good when I was done playing it, you know. And I feel like that, that hasn't left me at all. Like anytime I'm feeling any kind of way, I can just pick it up and jam my way to happiness. And I imagine <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. now that down the line you become a songwriter too, mm -hmm. that serves the same purpose it does it does i'm in love with words and their arrangement and placement and you know meanings is there a moment when you're piecing together words where you have that that moment where you figure out those things go together this way i hope other people see it that way and then they do is there one of those lines i mean where everything came together when i put together words i just do my best to to tell the story. Sometimes I do put them in there in a um, kind of a puzzling way so that it will have more dimension and more layers and more meaning with age because I think um, those make for better songs, ones that you can grow with and you can have at various times in your life, I guess. You have an MFA in poetry. Mm -hmm. Is the Venn diagram that connects songwriting and poetry just a circle? Oh, no. They're two different animals. So they are. They're completely yeah. different. I mean, they're, they're definitely poetics and songwriting, and there are terms that both use, but um, as far as them being even close to the same thing to me is, is, is a 
terrible idea. <laughs> I mean, with poems, you have a, a, pa a piece of paper and you have some words on it. That's that's all you get. And with and with songs, you get the paper and the words and the instruments and the, you know, you have time and poetry, but it's not as easy to figure out at first, you know. There are structures and there are time and there is rhythm in poetry, but it's not obvious like it is. It's not always as obvious as it is definitely obvious with music. And um, Even though there's an extra step in the music, it's not as easy. I don't know if it's an extra step because if you're writing a song, a lot of times the, the song, the melody and the rhythm and the words all come out kind of all together. And when you're doing a, a poem, you're... you're your lens is usually smaller, and then you have your your words, and then you pick decide what kind of you know structure you're writing in, or what kind of like form you're writing in, and then you have to follow the rules, and or not if you know them, you're allowed to break them, or depending on what kind of a professional you aim to be. But um, I feel like with songs, you have more of it that can come all at once, all together, to paint this picture. In songs, you can say things like, or sing things like non-words, like, ooh, la, 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 and that apparently means something, you know, or it's a sing-along part for the community. And then um, if you do that on a on a poem, I mean, you, you got to really be a genius to make that work. But um, it's also different in how people um, digest the two things. Like, you're usually, when you're watching live music, you're in a group of people, you know, you're, everybody's, you know feeling great. It's all like-minded people in one room. In poems, it's oftentimes solo. It's a solo practice where you're reading poems and thinking about what exactly the line means. And it's it's kind of meditative. I mean, they're both meditative, but it's done solo for the most part. You know, the experience of it. But not to drag this out. <laughs> you can cut it up however you want. But if I read a poem and it makes sense to me, mm -hmm or it doesn't, I might just move on, mm -hmm. whereas a song that might not make sense to me the first time mm -hmm. might make sense to me 50 listens in or 10 years later, right. and it's still there. Mm -hmm. But I think some of that, too, is just um, individual, uh, based on the individual, because um, there are artists that I really didn't like the sound of their voices, and then, you know, five or six years later, it was like, what was I thinking? Man, I was a moron. And with poems, I think, too, certain experiences you don't have until, you know, you don't have the same experiences as a as an 18-year-old, as a 30-year-old would. So some of the things aren't going to be relevant if, if you don't have a lot of experience under your belt to even understand what a poem could be about or a song. It's funny how they're related, but they're both two different animals. At this point in your life and career where you're in Nashville and you're making records that are the furthest removed from the traditional fiddle music you started with. Mm -hmm. How much of Lubbock, Mineral Wells, Texas informs this stuff? I mean, everything. Um, all of it is informed by it because, I mean, as a, as a human, I was formed here and I grew up here and all those things, and it's you can't remove what's in your blood. And... Um, I think that even figuring out a way to manipulate the um, fiddle violin sounds to fit the record is is important because the music I'm doing now is a little is far off from you know what you call country and there are some Americana sounding songs but I don't like the idea of getting out there and playing shows and just playing guitar and leaving the fiddle behind because the sound doesn't exactly fit the landscape. So um, Dave and I, Dave Cobb, that produced the record, decided to try it through some pedals. And, that, and at first I was like, oh, no, please, no. That's going to be terrible. That's the, I've seen this in so many bar bands. It's the worst. And um, we figured out some tasteful ways to do it so that um, I, won't, I wouldn't have to, you know, cut off one of my favorite appendages. And that's why... This sounds so dramatically different. Mm -hmm. But I also think that it's, um, I mean, I mean, I think it's awesome. Whatever. I'm from Lubbock and Mineral Wells, Texas. Everything's going to be awesome. I'm a Texan. Were you frustrated by being grouped into, at one point, Americana, at another point, 
she's country but not country enough. I mean, you never fit any of those boxes, yet they tried to put you in each of those boxes. I mean, I don't mind. If people want to put me in a group, I'm glad to be in a group. It's better than not being in a group at all, just being at home having to waitress. I was a shitty waitress. Um, but I didn't get frustrated. I just, you know, it's, my, it's not my job to decide where the music goes or where it fits. My To me, my job is to just um, make music and play it and enjoy enjoy meeting new people along the way, I guess. Is that the lure of the road? The idea that there might be new people that haven't seen this, new people to meet. I mean, because you could do this on a on the scale you're at. Mm-hmm. You could do this on a less traveling scale. Yeah, I think the reason you don't have to travel as much as you do. Right, totally. I don't have to. I mean, I'm at the point where I don't I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. But I'm not trying to brag or anything. I'm just lucky because that also makes it possible for me to to make the kind of music I want to make and to be able to to follow the song wherever it goes, however weird or quirky, as a lot of people like to say. I hate that word. Um, but um, I, I think the, the lure of the road is it's a love-hate relationship, really. It's a lot of, a lot of waiting around, a lot of traveling. But the, um, I feel like the songs are alive and in their truest form when you're actually performing them. And um, connecting with people that might feel similar ways that I feel or have felt or as characters in the songs might or might not have felt um, is important to me. And um, yeah, I I also get real stir crazy if I'm at home too long. Did seeing as much of the country as you've seen lately, does that reinforce that we're as divided as we've ever been? Or does that give you some kind of different perspective? I I mean, uh, that's a tough one. I feel I feel like there's so much unspoken and unsaid, but I also feel like the what's been happening for the past years, um, as many kind of terrible things as there have been, there's been some good that's come out of it. I mean, there wouldn't have been things like a Me Too movement or a lot of different things. It's just like with what's happening now, there I just there are positive things that are also happening. It's just it's just shocking though to to even understand how we got here. I mean, how are we taking kids from their parents and all? I just, it's just nuts. I didn't know if maybe you had some extra perspective on it by traveling as much as you do, because the people that said they saw all this coming are often the people that said, I go places outside of my little comfort zone. I mean, I've, for me, I've, I've seen things like during the campaign when it was okay for the president to start saying the word pussy. Um, I mean... Right then at, at gas stations it, and, you know, truck stops, it was suddenly okay to begin catcalling again. And I I got I to have a little bit of temper about that stuff. So anyway, leads to some more altercations. <laughs> but you've never been one to sit quietly in the corner. No, no. And to say every, whoever says they could see everything coming, I mean, I hope they're a millionaire. Predicting the future, how do you do that? But I don't know. This is me vaguely trying to explain something. (laughs) But you've been, I mean, part of the story is that you're one of the few who will speak. I will. To a lot of these issues. I will. Whether it's women on country, radio, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's our current political climate. Right. um, You're not worried about alienating an audience yeah and I'm more and not and I'm more worried at this moment about alienating um, your Texas monthly art um, audience because they're they're not my audience to alienate from you you know what I mean so trying to be cool on your behalf well but I wouldn't have asked okay, you cool. to do this so if you I don't was care either right of, okay well, awesome I mean yeah I was just trying to be considerate <laughs> <laughs> that's awfully nice of you but I mean at the end of the day does that come around how does that affect the art um man i I, mean this isn't a protest record no but um, at the same time it's it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a here we are here's what we did there goes the sunset there's a sunrise coming and then maybe in the middle we can find ways to to stay positive and keep figuring out how to move in the right direction and and ways to actively help, I guess. And um, like that song, Take on the Dark, that's, you know, 
that was that was a, a political song um you know with obfuscation and um yeah i i think there's a way to bring people together but it's definitely not online it needs to be like person to person and in like real life so many trolls out there it's like we're living in the land of of trolls and two billy goats gruffs are still alive on a completely different note you recently played the outlaws and armadillos show uh there at the country music hall of fame in nashville which is based on the crossroads Mm -hmm. of austin and nashville in the 70s um you saw billy joe shaver who you famously spent time with touring. Yeah. Uh, what was that show like? And I walked around that exhibit recently, and <laughs> I thought they did a fairly did good a, job of yeah. bridging that gap. I did too. And what was really interesting at the end of the night is um, my husband said, "Is like, I, you know, I really, you know, I live in Alabama. I know a lot about Muscle Shoals and stuff, but I really didn't know as much about Texas music as I know now. And I was like, well, way to go, honorary Texan. <laughs> here's your schooling and so that's what we talked about for a while and that's what we listened to for a while and um man it was really fun like to see Joey Lee and Billy Joe I hadn't seen him in a while and um it was really awesome because Billy Joe Shaver is the reason that I I pursued my dreams of moving to Nashville to become a waitress slash songwriter and um and then to see him in the meantime and then finally see him and now I'm a songwriter and he's like see I told you you could do it I don't know. It's just it's it's kind of um, I don't know what the name of the thing I'm trying to explain. It's a full circle. Yeah, yeah. He famously told you that you were better than just being a side woman, mm-hmm. and that you should be writing your own songs. Mm-hmm. Do you think that would have happened anyway, or do you think it took somebody? No, it took maybe somebody. as crazy as Billy Joe. I mean, to throw that out there. It took somebody. It, it 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 wouldn't have happened any any other way I don't think because um, it has to be somebody that you can trust that tells you these kinds of things and and at first I didn't trust him about it because he's my hero and I'm like what are you trying to do um, fire me you know but no um, and somebody that that um that their music was moving you know it takes it yeah if some old regular old person at old uh, wherever wherever busking or whatever said move to Nashville be a songwriter be like yeah what do you know about it buddy but I could trust his opinion because he had been doing it for so long and probably doesn't tell everybody he meets that I sure hope not (laughs) for as long as you've been doing this now what part of this couldn't you have seen coming what was the thing nobody tells you is part of this life I guess nobody tells you that's about this part of this life is how much time you spend in a plane or in the airport lines and the TSA really hates your fiddle and that people don't like to give up bin space for inter- for instruments, you know, on the plane. And sometimes if you start crying and begging, they will. Um, I, man, I would never have guessed I'd be friends with John Prine. That's crazy. Um, uh, the amount of um, wet wipes I use on a daily basis, never would have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> Got to try and keep from getting sick, you know. And that was before you had a kid. Exactly, yeah. I was reading today a stack of Amanda Shire stories. Mm. And I don't know, you and your husband aren't Beyonce and Jay-Z. No, we're not. I, and yet... We're both white. That is true. <laughs> but we're yet, not rappers or R&B, although we'd like to be. All these stories, they maybe get a paragraph and a half in before it's Jason Isbell this, Jason Isbell that. Is that just part of this that you've come to terms with? Or is that still sort of retro sexist thinking where you've got to be linked to that guy that you're married to, which is a different thing? But then again, you've interspersed your careers. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a might be a long answer, but a lot of times when you're reading articles and things, people like to set the environment of what you're reading and try to relate things to other things that you might know about. So it's not just this jarring article. Um, like Jason can't get rid of former member of the drive-by truckers, and like you know, 
I mean, Billy Joe probably can't get past uh, shooting a guy in the face right now. It'll probably take 15 years before that leaves the articles. I don't know. People people like to put stuff like that in there. And um, also, Jason Isbell, that we know now, didn't have the success really until like Southeastern and all that. And, um, I, you know, I know deep down in my heart that I helped do that. So it doesn't doesn't bother me at all. You know? Okay, so that's yeah. the answer is yeah. that it just doesn't bother you. It just doesn't bother me. Um, and I'm and I'm really happy that he has the success and that he has people that love what he does because it's a it's a hard thing to watch somebody go through um, addiction problems and rehab and all that and come out of it you know afraid and then when good things do happen it sort of reinforces for him I'm speaking for him I hope it's right but that that he's doing the right thing and that it's better you know and there's something for you to learn from that too. Right, definitely. Um, not just through proximity. Yeah, but. yeah, totally. Yeah, and I can't help. I can't change the fact that there's not enough spots in radio for women. That would happen whether or not I was with Jason or not. It's a, it's doesn't matter. At the end of the day, I'm still a woman. You wrote a piece, a, a letter to fans, I would say, uh, right around the turn of the new year, explaining that you can't be at every Jason Isbell show. Mm-hmm. You can't play all those, yet. You're going to play them when you can. Mm-hmm. You want to have your own career. Mm-hmm. And you tied it all to, I want to show my daughter that this is possible. Right. Tell me more about that. Um, I, I love to play. So I'll play in Jason's band any day I'm not working on my own songs. And um, he'll oftentimes, when he's not working on the road, come to my shows and play. And um, it was getting to the point of... Of comments, you know, comments coming in about the Amanda Shires is going to is are you going to be at the show? That was the only question I'd get asked all the time, and um, then there'd be like hate mail. You weren't at this show. Uh, who do you think you are? And all this kind of stuff. And then I was just like, wow, do these, I'm a person. Um, it's not because I'm like don't want to be at the show, ma'am. Uh, but I, I I've always wanted to write songs and play songs and do that and. Um, I was a side person once upon a time, and I wasn't meant to be. As much as I res- respect stay-at-home moms and everything, it's a lot of work, a lot of a lot of time. Um, I wasn't going to be a stay-at-home mom, and I'm not going to be a side person, and I'm not going to be a side person in my husband's band. And I I don't want anybody else to think that if they have a child, or have kids, or you know whatever they have with music, to to feel like they're diminished somehow I don't know I just want I want her to grow up seeing that she can do whatever she wants to do and I don't want her to feel like you have to do what all the fans want you to do all the time I don't know it's just a complicated it's a complicated thing I just I want her to grow up knowing that I made the choices that I made and I did the things that I wanted to do and hopefully she can learn how to live with few regrets and you know be a confident strong woman and or a man, hand- if she wants to be a man, I don't care. On a handful of occasions, I've been in those green rooms where your daughter's running mm-hmm. around, and everyone's looking out for her, yet she seems to have a lot of space to run around. Mm-hmm. And she's seeing both her parents work really hard. Yeah. I mean, is that the lesson in the end? Um, or the reason that she's doing really well is I'm- that she's got this unique... I don't know. Environment I think to grow up in. The, I think the, I think we're just, I don't know if we're actively teaching her a lesson. We're just, I mean, I guess we are no matter what we're trying or not trying to do. But I think we're, you know, we don't want to, her to not be with us. So we want her to grow up wherever we are because we love her, you know. And if this is the work we do, this is the work that we do. I mean, it's probably similar to folks that stay at home and work, I guess, with their kids around. I don't know. I think that we're just trying to teach her that any kind of life is okay. What was the biggest difference between your life in Mineral Wells and yours in Lubbock when Mm. you'd go back and forth? In Mineral Wells, it was, I lived in the country, and um, all my, my dad's family, my grandpa, my grandma, and my uncle, and my aunt, and all their kids, and my other uncle, um, all our, they all lived in close proximity on the same piece of land of however many hundreds of acres. And so it was just like being dumped in the middle of a pasture, uh, four-wheelers and a 
stock tank to go fishing out of in a river nearby. And um, and the work we did there were, uh, my, my folks' business is a wholesale nursery business. You can see them on I-35 and over by uh, Weatherford and, is that 35 or 20? Probably 20. Um, but then on 280, 281 South, you can see the greenhouses. Those are all our family. So I grew up um, and spent the, you know, from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. working in the greenhouses. And then after that, we'd go swimming and, you know, playing and wrecking shit like you do when you live in the country. Lubbock, Texas is, um, there is no water, <laughs> no water features. <laughs> the world's largest, flattest land mass. Um, sand blasted on a daily basis by catabatic almost winds in um, what they call a haboob. Have you all heard of that? I have. Okay, they're amazing. Um, it, there's no, there's not really anything to do in Lubbock, and I know people from Lubbock hate it when people say that. There's there's a lot of art and a lot of you know music that comes from there, but there's really not much to do. You can go to the movies, you can look at the prairie dogs for about five minutes and um, eat some amazing Thai food. So I think it lends itself there to um, that sort of feeling of isolation that that kind of is helpful um, to creatives. It's like writing in a closet. Yeah, exactly. That's good. That's a good circle there. It's true. You had to leave yeah. Lubbock to go yeah. write in a closet in Nashville. Yeah, exactly. One thing I do do love about West Texas is, well, there's a lot of things, but I remember driving from Leveland to Lubbock a lot, going to South Plains. And um, I don't know why one day I did the 4th of July, and I could see like four counties worth of fireworks. It was beautiful. Like just, you know, have you ever been out there? It's flat as hell. I have there. I mean, okay, yeah. <laughs> I can see why people leave. I don't mean that in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe I do mean it that way. I mean, they did move from Lubbock to come to Austin, and there you have Austin. At the end of the day, this record's out. Do you have expectations? Do you put expectations on these records? I mean, I have hopes for the records, but they're not. Usually, they're. Because I already, I feel like I have everything I need, you know, my dream, my original dream was to have an audience of, my idea of success at first, and, you know, was, I'd like it if 25 people in every town came to my shows, then the line started moving, and it was like, I'd, success is 50 people, and then after that, I was like, okay, I can stay on the road if I can have a tour bus, God, that's all I need is a tour bus. And that's it. I have a tour bus. I don't want anything else. I can travel and not be tired and, you know, use a restroom quickly. Um, all the, you know, not have to drive millions of hours. But for the record, I guess I am, um, my hope is to not regress, you know, to keep trying to write and play shows as well as I can. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not seeking fame and fortune. If that should befall me, I will definitely share the wealth. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you. To the Sunset, the just-released new album from Amanda Shires is available wherever you buy or stream music. You can visit amandashiresmusic.com for her latest tour dates. In a moment, our conversation with Shea Serrano. But first, a reminder, hurricane season is upon us, which means many people in Texas have to prepare for major storms. This week's podcast is sponsored by Direct Energy, who have collected some tips and recommendations that can help you stay safe during a hurricane. Before a storm, review evacuation procedures and prepare a hurricane kit with items like water and extra phone chargers. During a storm, stay inside and away from windows and do not go outside until given the all clear. Direct Energy and Texas Monthly want all Texans to understand the dangers of these storms. For more in-depth tips and other energy recommendations, visit the Energy Department at TexasMonthly.com. And here we go, Shea Serrano. Earlier this week, Texas Monthly described him as America's foremost chronicler of pop minutia. And after books on basketball and hip-hop, The Ringer.com staff writer's new project focuses on the cult television hit, The Office. It's called Conference Room 5 Minutes, and it's a 10-essay collection, 
with illustrations from Arturo Torres, the Dallas-based artist who collaborated with Serrano on both the rap yearbook and basketball and other things. Serrano is selling the collection mostly via Twitter, asking fans to send $20 via the Venmo app for a PDF copy of what he's a little hesitant to call an actual book. In our interview, recorded Monday, the former school teacher who recently moved back home to San Antonio after a long run in Houston talks about the office, San Antonio Spurs basketball, and what he's learned about the power of social media. Welcome. Last week, Texas Monthly described you as America's foremost chronicler of pop minutia. And you kind of like that. Yeah, how could you not like that? How could you not be described as America's foremost anything? Even like if it's, uh, well, I guess there are some things you don't want to be America's foremost, but like uh, all the, on all the good sides, yeah, of course. Minutia's kind of your business, though. Yeah, it's fun to like, you know, crawl around inside the drawer and see what you find. There are other people that enjoy that, as luck would have it, and... I think we're looking at sort of that long tail effect, right, where somebody who has bitten off these little pieces of very popular things but gone really deep inside them, there is a market for that, and you've proven that. Uh, yeah, I, get, I mean, I, I don't know that I'm the one who proved it, but I think you could use the success of some of the stuff we've done as an example of that, sure. So this is the conference room five minutes, eight PDF, and you're careful to call it a PDF and not a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want any, I don't want anybody to feel like they were misled. You know, I don't want them to order a thing and then they get an email and they're going like, "What the hell? Where's my book? Actual book? Like this is very clearly not that. This isn't that thing." The PDF, though, is a very do-it-yourself kind of way to do this. That I guess ties back to both fanzines and to hip-hop mixtapes. Yeah. So what we did was I hired this woman named Seven Men. Um, she is the she was the one who designed the books that we have done, the rap year book, basketball and other things. She was in charge of making those books beautiful. So when I was going to do the office thing, I knew I wanted to treat it as seriously as we would a book. Like that's the only way these sorts of projects work is if people when they open it they feel like, Oh, okay, this person treated the thing with respect. And they worked very hard on it. Like then, you know, then it's easy to get excited about. So I wanted to do all of the parts up to the printing, very similar to how we would do a book. So I hired her. I paid her, you know, the same amount we pay her for the books. She built the thing so that it looks exactly like a book would look, except it's in your phone or on your your, uh, you know, Kindle or tablet or whatever you like to read your stuff on. So yeah, yeah, yeah. People are printing them out. We've seen a bunch of that online photos of the printed out version. They've they've bound them. Uh, I imagine that's a kick for you to see. Yeah, that's a very that's like a, a neat little bonus. Is to I figured some people would print them up, but I thought you know they would print them up on your printer at home, your black and white printer. But they are they're doing it through like Kinkos or FedEx or at work, and it looks very professional. It looks cool. It, it, it makes me feel good. I mean, a PDF is a very easy thing to steal and share, and you've got this following that is paying for them and not presumably stealing and sharing them to the point where it's going to affect your bottom line. There's a trust there. Yeah, there is. I mean, it, there's no, like, way to stop someone from forwarding a PDF or whatever, and I'm sure it's happened a bunch as the thing has, has gone out there. But uh, a lot of times I'll get messages or you know, alerts on Venmo and somebody is like, oh, here's $20. I forward this thing to my friend or like here's $60. I sent it to my three brothers. Like that sort of thing is happening. And it's cool to watch because it, to me, it makes me feel like people are being respectful of the effort that went into building it. Um, and that's, you know, why would that not make me feel good? In that Texas Monthly piece, Dan Solomon wrote, Basketball and rap music are both undeniably cool things to care about. The Office is not. Right. Is that true? I think The Office is extremely cool. But that might be because I, uh, maybe I'm just an uncool person and I think uncool things are, are cool. But uh, no, I think The Office is, is cool. But I understood the point he was trying to make or the point that he was making there, which is like, 
like the stuff you want to like and care about the stuff you want to care about, it's okay. You don't have to only like the, the big, cool things that everybody else does. Fundamentally, you wrote 10 essays about it, but if I drill down on that, the reason you really like The Office is what? Uh, I just like the way it makes me feel when I watch it. It's very familiar. The office, I mean, the, the humor in it, I feel like is smart and, and just a thing that a version of it that we don't get too, too much. So it's just cool to watch. There's a show in development for you about growing up in San Antonio with five uncles. How much do you take away from the office and use in that script writing process? Uh, when we were writing the script, or when I was writing the script for that, I was trying to, I don't know, I guess I was trying to take a, a bunch of it, you know? I want to just steal all of the good stuff that they did. And Mike was working on it as well, Mike Schur, who was one of the writers and producers on The Office. And then he also did, like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and A Good Place and Parks and Rec and all of those shows. Um, so, yeah, I was just sort of leaning on him to, to make it good or to make it funny, you know? You want to just mimic the things that you like. Now, you're back in San Antonio. Correct. Why? What's that about? <laughs> um, we just felt like moving. My my family is here. My mom, my dad, my two of my sisters, uh, all my uncles, everybody's here. And we were living in Houston. We were there for 14 years, me, my wife, my three children. And the oldest sons I have, the twins, got to fifth grade, and they were transitioning to a new school anyway. We were going from grade five to grade six. So from elementary to middle, and they were trading. They were since they were changing schools. We were looking at a let's move to a bigger house because the house we're in right now is too small, and everybody's sort of sharing rooms. And so we started looking around for places in Houston, just assuming that we were going to live there. And after we finally found a place that we really liked, and we were ready to move, like two weeks later is when Hurricane Harvey happened, and that area where we wanted to move just got destroyed, even though they told us ahead of time like this is in the flood zone area. And then you start reading all the stories about, uh, you know, the sort of backed up infrastructure of Houston. And, like, this is a problem that's going to keep on happening in the areas where it's happening already and possibly more. It just seemed like it made too much sense to not to come here, to not do that. How different is the San Antonio that you return to now after 14 or 15 years than the one you left originally? I think San Antonio itself seems very much the same, but since I'm in a different spot in my life, it definitely feels like a new place. I mean, I was here when I was 17 years old is when I left, going on 18. Um, so that's the point in your life when you start to feel like, I want to get out and I want to explore and I want to be in a new place. And I was coming from the house where we were staying. It was like 14 people that were living there, and it was like... Like, not a great place, not a great neighborhood. I was ready to be in a new um, area. So at the time, I thought I was leaving forever um, because I had, like, outgrown the city. I didn't want the things that were happening to some of my friends to happen to me. I wanted to be away from all that. So then I left, and, like, that was the vision of San Antonio I always had in my head or the memory of it was, like, watching it eat up a bunch of people that I cared about. And then I started to get older and a little more established in life and start coming back and like you just look at things differently after you get married after you have children um you look at some of the stuff that san antonio can offer um in a different light and you're like okay this makes sense let's come back home one of the things that you acknowledge drove you back home were the schools and were moving at the time that your kids could be uprooted and move into a different school uh you were a teacher what did you take away from that experience that you use today? Uh, I took away a lot. I think it just depends on, you know, what aspect of life are we talking about. If we're talking about in writing, what did I learn in teaching that I use in writing? I learned that um, if you make people feel like you care about a thing, then they're inclined to care about it as well. And short of caring about it, they're at least inclined to, like, give it the respect that they might not have Otherwise, that's, a, I think, maybe the biggest thing there. Um, but then you also learn a bunch of little tricks that just help you out in life in general. Like when you're teaching kids, if, if you can make them, again, feel like you care about them, then, you know, they respond differently than when they feel like you don't care about them. If you make people feel like 
you want to be where you are, then they get excited about that. You learn a bunch of little tricks. I mean, some of them, I guess, are bigger tricks than others, but that's one of them. A small trick is, like, if you give somebody a nickname, they automatically like you more. Um, Or if you, like, very clearly define all of the stuff that you expect from a person, usually that's what you're going to, to get from them, you know. I think that's the good thing about kids is you don't have to, try to trick them into stuff, you can just straight up say, this is what I need you to do, and this is why I need you to do it, and then it's go, oh, okay, well, now I understand. During Harvey, you were away while it was happening, and you, of course, took to the Internet, raised a bunch of money instantly, and as well as that worked out, you had the guilt that you weren't there and that this was all you could do, even though you had done this incredible thing and gotten people to pitch in overnight the way they did. Looking back a year later, what did you learn from that experience? Maybe the one thing I learned was that when when they tell you it's going to flood, like, get out. That was the <laughs> that's probably the big thing we learned there because the neighborhood where we lived in Houston, it was, it was behind um, it, was, it was called Brazewood, which is behind a neighborhood called Meyerland, which is a big flood zone area. And the past two years, the two years prior to Harvey, we flooded. Our neighborhood flooded for, you know, a storm came, and there you go, around the same period of time. Um, and we got trapped in there. So when we got the alert that, you know, the, there was going to be a big storm, I was in L.A. when it was happening. My wife was in Houston. She called to tell me, you know, we, they're saying a big storm's coming. What do we do? So that we were just straight up like, okay, just get the kids and go to San Antonio, and I'll redirect my flight there because we already knew we were definitely going to flood so that's maybe the one thing that i learned there also i guess the other thing is that people are really nice and like looking for a way to help when they can which i think is why the response to the fundraising stuff we did on twitter worked out so well yeah i mean that wasn't just a media creation people really did rally around in a way that most places or most events like this, they might not have. It felt like something special was going on in Houston. Did it feel like that on the ground? Yeah, it did. To watch everybody sort of you know, come together, I guess, is the the term there. But yeah, you were you were watching people helping other people in this very genuine and very like sincere way, and not expecting anything in return. Which I think is usually what happens whenever there's any sort of like big catastrophe, which. Hurricane Harvey absolutely was in Houston. Like that was there were levels of flooding there that they had not seen in years and years and years. So that was just a response people had. It was really cool to watch it happen and to have even just a tiny part to play in it. You've done other drives using Venmo and using your Twitter account to activate people and get them involved, but you also don't want to go to that well too often. So that's a delicate dance that you've got to do as well, right? Yeah, that part is always weird. Every day, five, ten times a day, I get somebody sending me like a GoFundMe page or whatever from things as little as like, yo, I want to, I want to study abroad and I can't afford it to like, you know, my friend got hit by a car and this is going on or whatever. So yeah, it's always weird to like try to parse through and see which ones feel legit or try to reach out and corroborate or verify wherever I can. Um, yeah, that's what that's. That's always the worst spot to be put in. Could your career have happened had it not been around the same time of the rise of social media? Um, it might have, but it would have been much slower. Um, I, I would give myself a much smaller percentage. Let's say, like, I would have had a 3% shot at making it to the spot I am now without Twitter or Facebook or any of that stuff. But Twitter and Facebook and Instagram do exist, fortunately, so... Here we are. They amplify your voice, but your voice isn't sort of of that social media mindset. In other words, while you've got those platforms to amplify it, you're not doing the kind of work we typically think of quick hit, click-driven lists and whatnot. And I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, I think that's that's probably fair. And that's something you're cognizant of. Uh, yeah, I, I want to try to do stuff that not everybody else is doing like that's a that's a thing that i learned very early on in my career was that let's say i write an article and 
whatever, a new person who is just starting out in Houston writes a very similar article, and they both come out on the same day, more likely people are going to click on mine because my name rings out a little bit louder. Why would they choose to read that new person? You know what I'm saying? So if you're writing the stuff that everybody else is already writing, you're just not going to make it. That's just not a battle you're going to win often enough to make this a viable career. I can't write the same basketball article as like Bill Simmons or uh, Ramona Shelburne or Zach Lowe or whatever because they have their foot there already. Like I've got to come in from the side door. I've got to do something a little bit different. So usually whenever I'm trying to think of stuff that I want to write about or do, I'm trying to find something that has not been done yet or in a way that has not been done yet. You know what I'm saying? Is the best compliment that there's people that read, for instance, your writing on basketball that don't care at all about basketball? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I saw that a bunch with the Office thing when it came out. People are ordering it, and they're like, you know, I never watched The Office, but whatever, I like the basketball book or the rap book or something else she did, so I'm going to get it and see what happens. Like That makes that doesn't make me feel good. Because I can remember when I bought Bill's book, his baseball book, for example. I don't watch baseball, but I had read the basketball book, and I was like, oh, this writing is fun. Or with like Chuck Klosterman, um, or Klosterman, rather, reading like Fargo Rock City, which I don't know anything about rock or I don't know anything about Fargo, but I like the way Chuck writes, so I'm going to read the things that he writes. Yeah, that doesn't make me feel good to hear people say it about me, for sure. How has basketball largely avoided the political drama that surrounds the NFL? <laughs> uh, well, the nature of the game is just different. It's a much less violent game. Uh, they don't have to deal with all of the CTE stuff that's going on. Um, also, the, the NBA has been very smart about leaning into letting players speak out on the issues that should be spoken out on. Like, that's the whole reason that the Colin Kaepernick thing has lasted for as long as it, as it has, because the NFL very dumbly planted their flag and was like, no, this is not how this is going to be, rather than letting that conversation happen, which they should have. The NBA has handled everything the opposite of that. They celebrated when their players have spoken up. Are you worried about the Spurs? Not the politics part, but just the, the where, where, where they're at. I am, yeah, absolutely. I've been worried about the Spurs ever since Tim Duncan left. This is all new, so at the moment, it's like a little bit interesting more than anything else to see the Spurs handling things in the way, you know, handling all of, this, these, all of a sudden new things. But yeah, it is, it is hard to watch your beloved Spurs fall further and further away from reaching the championship. But that's just part of it, you know. Give give us 20 years, we'll be back. I mean, there is an ebb and flow to every sports franchise, and nothing lasts forever. That's true, that's true. Uh, with San Antonio, though, it was just so long. I mean, we're talking about nearly two decades uh, of being in that conversation legitimately, and then all of a sudden, no more. So it did, it did feel like it would last forever in San Antonio because 20 years is a long time, 19 years is a long time. But now that we're here, it's like... Oh, shoot. Is there a particular brand of swagger, an aesthetic that runs through Texas basketball and hip-hop? Yeah, you know what? I think you could probably make the argument, if you look at the way San Antonio built itself up as a basketball city, um, or the way Houston did it as well in the mid-'90s, drafting Hakeem and going that whole route, um, you can compare that to the way... Houston rap had to grow and, and create its own self-sustaining ecosystem because nobody was paying attention to them in New York or L.A. when they were bouncing back and forth there for, like, king of rap. Like, Houston had to learn how to do it on its own and get it to, get it on its own. Um, you could say the same thing about basketball here in San Antonio or in, in Houston. It's the same sort of thing. Like, this is not a marquee area when we're talking about markets. You've got to learn to do it on your own. And there's sort of an underdog aesthetic to both. Yeah, forever. There will forever be that. In your Twitter feed, um, you have not shied away from dismissing and chastising this president at the potential risk, I assume, of alienating some of the fan base. And you've done that calculation or not done that calculation, and you don't care, right? Yeah, some stuff is just a little more important than selling books, you know what I'm saying? So I don't want to be as clear as possible all the time. Same as I was telling you earlier when we're talking about 
teaching, like, I just want everybody to know how I feel about the important stuff, the big things. Like, this is where I stand on these situations. And, like, if you want to hang around with me, cool. If you don't, cool. But, like, I'm not trying to – I'm not doing the Republicans buy shoes too thing that Michael Jordan was doing. <laughs> You've also, though, over the years, I, I saw you at one point say that you don't want to be the guy that says, how does basketball look through a Mexican lens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's part of your voice, but it just can't be the voice, right? I mean, you can't separate you from where you came from. Yeah, exactly. I just want to make sure all of the time that that I don't only have to be like, Oh, let's hear what the Mexicans think about this. Like it, it just does. It doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. So I want to make sure that I don't end up in that position. So far, just in the first couple weeks of this PDF experiment, do you see yourself going back to books, or have you stumbled onto a way here to cut out a bunch of middlemen? <laughs> um, I think I would like to do both of them. The PDF is was fun. It's fun because you get to just sort of hone in on one specific thing. I don't. I, w- I don't think I would want to do an entire book on the office. I think that might feel a bit tedious after a while when you get to page like 236 and you're talking about Jim and and Pam's feel. But like, uh, you know, just small bites, ten essays, perfect length to talk about a TV show. You can hit all the stuff you want to hit in it. Um, book stuff would be would be great if you did it like just a bigger version of it. Like, I didn't do a Spurs book, I did a basketball book. And I didn't do a Houston rap book, I did an olive rap book. So I would, like, if I was going to do something like this, maybe we do all of TV or, like, several TV shows or all of movies or whatever. And you like books. I mean, publishing itself is still interesting to you. Yeah, publishing is cool. It's this whole process that is, like, terrifying and exhilarating and, like, it feels very permanent, and the stakes feel very high. It's fun to be a part of that when you're in it. It's fun to be done with it when you're done with it, but like when you're in it, yeah, it's very like it's very intense. It feels like. As the teacher who wrote on the side, what's the part of this you could have never expected then when you were making this sort of accidental transition? I think what I would have assumed then, or what I definitely was assuming then, was that. It was always going to just be a thing I do on the side. You know, you hear all of the stories about like, oh, journalism is dying as an industry. Nobody's there are no jobs and nobody's making any money, and all that stuff is definitely true. But there's a you know there's another lane over there where you can get in and and make some space for yourself. So if I was talking to you know me when I was teaching at year six or seven or eight or whatever, I would that version of me just did not see a future where all I did full-time was write things. And now that I'm in it, it's like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. Let's let's do this for a little while and see what happens. Is the TV thing still alive? The ABC show, no, that one is not. Um, that one, no, the Rap Your Book one, yes, they're filming that one right now. Um, and then, like, we're, we're, you know, we're pitching stuff whenever we're, we're pitching stuff. The tricky thing about doing TV is you sort of have to be in L.A. to do it. Like if you sell a show, for example, you can pitch a show and live in Houston or San Antonio, it's fine. But if you sell a show, all of a sudden you've got to be in L.A. for like five months straight or something crazy like that. And that, that's just not a thing that I can do or that I'm willing to do right now. I'm married. I've got three children. I can't leave them for that long. I don't even like leaving the house for like three days to travel. There's no way I'm going to last that long. It would be miserable for everybody. We'd all hate it. So... But you're but you're out there pitching, and there are stories you want to tell on TV as that in that medium. Yeah, TV, movies, all of that stuff. It's fun to like poke your head in the door and see what everybody's talking about, and maybe throw some ideas out there as well. And that's I think a cool thing about the, the TV industry or movie industry is like you can show up, sell your idea, and then get out, and that's fine. <laughs> like like when we did the the TV show you mentioned earlier, we showed up. We just straight up sold the script. Here's the script. We're going to sell it to you, and you can do what you want with it, and we're done. So you don't have to be out there for that. You just have to show up for the meetings, which is cool. And then it doesn't sting as much, I guess, when they don't make it. Oh, no, it still stings a lot. <laughs> and you're still being told no, and every time you're told no, 
no matter what the situation is, it feels like a rejection of you as a person. Even now, when I'm pitching stuff to the ringer, I send them ideas every week. And every time they say no to one of the ideas I send, which is every single week, it still hurts my feelings. And I'm very upset about it every single time. Shouldn't they trust you by now? No, that's their job. They should, they're there to keep me from getting fired. That's what my editors are there for, to make sure I don't get myself fired. So if they say no, then I have, I have to assume, like, okay, well, they see something that I, that I don't see. I'll be a mess without them. All right. Well, and that's why you're the uh, critically acclaimed and foremost chronicler of pop minutia. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Right there. All right. Thank you. All right. I'll be the easiest way to find Shea Serrano is on Twitter, at Shea Serrano. From there, you can send him money and get a copy of Conference Room 5 Minutes. Meanwhile, the August issue of Texas Monthly is out now, with a celebration of small-town Texas and an investigation into Schlitterbahn's tragic slide. Find it on newsstands or at the best grocers, fine waiting rooms, and perhaps your neighbor's coffee table. We know you can find us 24-7 at TexasMonthly.com. And if you like what you heard here, consider subscribing to the National Podcast of Texas on Apple, Google, SoundCloud, or Spreaker, and maybe sharing it on social media, or perhaps even leaving a recommendation on one of those services. And look for our other podcasts too, including our new barbecue podcast, Fire and Smoke. Also, while you're at TexasMonthly.com, find information about our second annual Texas Monthly Edge of Texas. Two days of programming, September 7th and 8th in Dallas, that'll consist of editorial Q&As, discussions with Texas thought leaders, musical performances, and food from some of the state's top chefs. I'm Andy Langer, working with producer Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here, and thanks in advance for coming back next week. You've been listening to the National Podcast of Texas a production of Texas Monthly, the national magazine.